Chapter Three of the Literary Sense. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Bascom. The Literary Sense by Edith Nesbit. Chapter Three The Obvious. He had the literary sense, but he had it as an inverted instinct. He had a keen perception of the dramatically fitting in art, but no counteracting vision of the fitting in life. Life and art, indeed, he found from his earliest years difficult to disentwine, and later impossible to disentangle, and to disentangle and disentwine them became, at last, a point of honor to him. He first knew that he loved her on the occasion of her coming-of-age party. His people and hers lived in the same somber London square, their Hazelmere gardens were divided only by a sunk fence. He had known her all his life. Her coming of age succeeded but by a couple of days his return from three years of lazy philosophy, study in Germany, and the sight of her took his breath away. In the time-honored cliché of the hurried novelist, too hurried to turn a new phrase for an idea as old as the new life of spring, he had left a child, he had found a woman. She wore a soft, satiny white gown that showed gleams of rose color through its folds. There were pink hollyhock blossoms in the bright brown of her hair. Her eyes were shining with the excitement of this festival of which she was the goddess. He lost his head, danced with her five times, and carried away a crumpled hollyhock bloom that had fallen from her hair during the last lancers through which he had watched her. All his dances with her had been waltzes, it was not till, alone again at his hotel, he pulled out the hollyhock flower with his ball program that he awoke to a complete sense of the insipid flatness of the new situation. He had fallen in love, was madly a prix at any rate, and the girl was the girl whose charms, whose fortune, whose general suitability as a match for him had been dinned into his ears ever since he was a callow boy at Oxford, and she a long, black, silk-legged, short-frocked tomboy of fourteen. Everyone had always said it was the obvious thing. And now he had, for once, done exactly what was expected of him, and his fine literary sense revolted. The worst of all was that she seemed not quite to hate him. Better, a thousand times better, that he should have loved and longed and never won a smile from her, that he should have sacrificed something, anything, and gone his lonely way. But she had smiled on him. Undoubtedly she had smiled and he did not want to play the part so long ago assigned to him by his people. He wanted to be Sidney Carton. Darnay's had always seemed to him the inferior role. Yet he could not keep his thoughts from her. And for what was left of the year, his days and nights were a restless seesaw of longing and repulsion, advance and retreat. His moods were reflected in hers, but always in an interview later. That is to say, if he were cold on Tuesday, she on Thursday would be colder. If on Thursday he grew earnest, Sunday would find her kind. But he, by that time, was frigid. So they never, after the first wildly beautiful evening when their hearts went out to each other in a splendor of primitive frankness, met in moods that chimed. This safeguarded him. It irritated her. And it most successfully bewitched them both. His people and her people looked on, and were absolutely and sadly convinced that, as her brother put it to his uncle, it was no go. Thereupon, a certain young old cotton broker appearing on the scene and bringing gifts with him, her people began to put pressure on her. She loathed the cotton broker, and said so. 
one afternoon every one was by careful accident got out of the way and the cotton broker caught her alone that night there was a scene her father talked a little too much of obedience and of duty her mother played the hysterical symphony with the loud pedal hard down and the next morning the girl had vanished leaving the conventional note of farewell on the pincushion now the two families being on all accounts close allies had bought jointly a piece of land near the little stone gulf links and on it had built a bungalow occupied by members of either house in turn according to any friendly arrangement that happened to commend itself but at this time of year the folk were keeping christmas season dismally in their town houses it was on the day when the cotton broker made his failure that the whole world seemed suddenly worthless to the man with the hollyhock bloom in his pocket-book because he had met her at a dance and he had been tender but she reflecting his mood of their last meeting had been glacial so he lied roundly to his people and told them that he was going to spend a week or two with an old chum who was staying up for the vacation at cambridge and instead he chose the opposite point of the compass and took the train to new romney and walked over to the squat one-storied bungalow near the sea here he let himself in with the family latch-key and set to work with the help of a box from the stores borne behind him with his portmanteau on a hand-cart to keep christmas by himself this at least was not literary it was not in the least what a person in a book would do he lit a fire in the dining-room and the chimney was damp and smoked abominably so that when he had fed full on tinned meats he was fain to let the fire go out and to sit in his fur-lined overcoat by the becendered grate now fast growing cold and smoke pipe after pipe of gloomy reflection he thought of it all the cursed countenance which his people were ready to give to the match that he couldn't make her maddening indecisions his own idiotic variableness he had lighted the lamp but it smelt vilely and he blew it out and did not light candles because it was too much trouble so the early winter dusk deepened into night and the bitter north wind had brought the snow and it drifted now in feather-soft touches against the windows he thought of the good warm dining-room in russell square of the gathering of aunts and uncles and cousins uncongenial perhaps but still human and he shivered in his fur-lined coat and his icy solitude damning himself for the fool he knew he was and even as he damned his breath was stopped and his heart leaped at the sound faint but unmistakable of a key in the front door if a man exist not too remote from his hairy ancestors to have lost the habit of the pricking ear he was that man he pricked his ears so far as the modern man may and listened the key grated in the lock grated and turned the door was opened and banged again something was set down in the little passage set down thumpingly and wholly without precaution he heard a hand move along the partition of match-boarding he heard the latch of the kitchen door rise and fall and he heard the scrape and spurt of a struck match he sat still he would catch this burglar red-handed through the ill-fitting partitions of the jerry-built bungalow he could hear the intruder moving recklessly in the kitchen the legs of chairs and tables grated on the brick floor he took off his shoes rose and crept out through the passage towards the kitchen door it stood ajar a clear-cut slice of light came from it treading softly in his stockinged feet he came to it and looked in one candle stuck in a tea saucer burned on the table a weak blue and yellow glimmer came from some sticks in the bottom of the fireplace kneeling in front of this breathless with the endeavour to blow the damp sticks to flame crouched the burglar a woman a girl she had laid aside hat and cloak the first sight of her was like a whirlwind sweeping over heart and brain for the bright brown hair that candlelight lingered in 
was like her dear brown hair and when she rose suddenly and turned towards the door his heart stood still for it was she her very self she had not seen him he retreated in all the stillness his tortured nerves allowed and sat down again in the fur coat and the dining-room she had not heard him he was for some moments absolutely stunned then he crept to the window in the poignant stillness of the place he could hear the heavy flakes of snow dabbing softly at the glass she was here she like him had fled to this refuge confident in its desertion at this season by both the families who shared a right to it she was there he was there why had she fled the question did not wait to be answered it sank before the other question what was he to do the whole literary soul of the man cried out against either of the obvious courses of action i can go in he said and surprise her and tell her i love her and then walk out with dignified propriety and leave her alone here that's conventional and dramatic or i can sneak off without her knowing i've been here at all and leave her to spend the night unprotected in this infernal frozen dog hutch that's conventional enough heaven knows but what's the use of being a reasonable human being with free will if you can't do anything but the literarily and romantically obvious here a sudden noise thrilled him next moment he drew a long breath of relief she had but dropped a gridiron as it crashed and settled down with a rhythmic rattle on the kitchen flags the thought flowed through him like a river of paradise if she did love me if i loved her what an hour and what a moment this would be meantime she her hands helpless with cold was dropping clattering gridirons not five yards from him suppose he went out to the kitchen and suddenly announced himself how flat how obvious suppose he crept quietly away and went to the inn at new romney how desperately flat how more than obvious suppose he but the third course refused itself to the desperate clutch of his drowning imagination and left him clinging to the bare straw of a question what should he do suddenly the really knightly and unconventional idea occurred to him an idea that would save him from the pit of the obvious yawning on each side there was a bicycle shed where also wood was stored and coal and lumber of all sorts he would pass the night there warm in his fur coat and his determination not to let his conduct be shaped by what people in books would have done and in the morning strong with great renunciation of all the possibilities that this evening's meeting held he would come and knock at the front door just like anybody else and qui vive la vera at least he would be watching over her rest and would be able to protect the house from tramps very gently and cautiously all in the dark he pushed his bag behind the sofa covered the store's box with a liberty cloth from a side table crept out softly and softly opened the front door it opened softly, that is, but it shut with an unmistakable click that stung in his ears, as he stood on one foot on the snowy doorstep, struggling with the knots of his shoelaces. The bicycle shed was uncompromisingly dark, and smelt of coal sacks and paraffin. He found a corner, between the coal and the wood, and sat down on the floor. "'Bother the fur coat,' was his answer to the doubt whether the coal dust and broken twigs were a good downsetting for that triumph of the Bond Street art." There he sat, full of a chastened joy at the thought that he watched over her, that he, sleepless, untiring, was on guard, ready, at an instant's warning, to spring to her aid, should she need protection. The thought was mightily soothing. The shed was cold. The fur coat was warm. In five minutes he was sleeping peacefully as any babe. When he awoke it was with the light of a big horn-lantern in his eyes, and in his ears the snapping of wood. She was there 
stooping beside the heaped faggots, breaking off twigs to fill the lap of her gathered-up blue gown. The shimmering silk of her petticoat gleamed greenly. He was partly hidden by a derelict bicycle in a watering-can. He hardly dared to draw breath. Composedly she broke the twigs. Then, like a flash, she turned towards him. "'Who's there?' she said. An inspiration came to him, and this, at least, was not flat or obvious. He writhed into the darkness behind a paraffin cask, slipped out of his fur coat, and plunged his hands in the dusk of the coal. "'Don't be hard on a poor cove, mum,' he mumbled, desperately rubbing the coal dust onto his face. "'You wouldn't go for to turn a dog out on a night like this, let alone a poor chap out or work.' Even as he spoke, he admired the courage of the girl. Alone, miles from any other house, she met a tramp in an outhouse as calmly as though he had been a fly in the butter. "'You've no business here, you know,' she said briskly. "'What did you come for?' "'Shelter, mum. I wouldn't take nothing as don't belong to me. Not so much as a lump of coal, mum. Not if it was ever so.' She turned her head. He almost thought she smiled. "'But I can't have tramps sleeping here,' she said. "'It's not as if I was a regular tramp,' he said, warming to his part, as he had often done on the stage in his A.D.C. days. "'I'm a respectable working man, mum, as a seen better days.' "'Are you hungry?' she said. "'I'll give you something to eat before you go if you'll come to the door in five minutes.' He could not refuse, but when she was gone into the house he could bolt, so he said, "'Now may be the blessing. It's starving I am, mum, and on Christmas Eve.' This time she did smile. It was beyond a doubt. He had always thought her smile charming. She turned at the door, and her glance followed the lantern's rays as they pierced the darkness where he crouched. The moment he heard the house door shut, he sprang up and lifted the fur coat gingerly to the woodblock. Flight, instant flight. Yet how could he present himself at New Romney with a fur coat and a face like a collier's? He had drawn a bucket of water from the well earlier in the day. Some would be left. It was close by the back door. He tiptoed over the snow and washed and washed and washed. He was drying his face and hands with a pocket handkerchief that seemed strangely small and cold, when the door opened suddenly, and there, close by him, was she— silhouetted against the warm glow of fire and candles come in she said you can't possibly see to wash out there before he knew it her hand was on his arm and she had drawn him to the warmth and light he looked at her but her eyes were on fire i'll give you some warm water and you can wash at the sink she said closing the door and taking the kettle from the fire he caught sight of his face in the square of looking-glass over the sink tap was it worth while to go on pretending yet his face was still very black, and she evidently had not recognized him. Perhaps, surely, she would have the good taste to retire while the tramp washed, so that he could take his coat off. Then he could take flight, and the situation would be saved from absolute farce. But when she had poured the hot water into a bowl, she sat down in the Windsor chair by the fire and gazed into the hot coals. He washed. He washed till he was quite clean. He dried face and hands on the rough towel. He dried them till they were scarlet and shone but he dared not turn around. There seemed no way out of this, save by the valley of humiliation. Still she sat looking into the fire. As he washed, he saw with a half-retroverted eye the round table spread with china and glass and silver. As I live, it's set for two, he told himself, and in an instant jealousy answered, once and for all, the questions he had been asking himself since August. Aren't you clean yet? she said at last. How could he speak? "'Aren't you clean yet?' she repeated, and called him by his name. He turned then quickly enough. She was leaning back in the chair, laughing at him. "'How did you know me?' he asked angrily. "'Your tramp voice might have deceived me,' she said. "'You did do it most awfully well. 
but you see i'd been looking at you for ages before you woke then good-night said he good-night said she but it's not seven yet you're expecting someone he said pointing dramatically to the table oh that she said yes that was for for the poor man as had seen better days there's nothing but eggs but i couldn't turn a dog from my door on such a night till i'd fed it do you really mean why not it's glorious it's a picnic but he said oh well go if you like she said it was not only eggs it was all sorts of things from that store's box they ate and they talked he told her that he had been bored in town and had sought relief in solitude that she told him was her case also he told her how he had heard her come in and how he had hated to take either the obvious course of following her to the kitchen saying how do you do and retiring to new romney or the still more obvious course of sneaking away without asking her how she did and he told her how he had decided to keep watch over her from the bicycle shed and how the coal-black inspiration had come to him and she laughed that was much more literary than anything else you could have thought of she said it was exactly like a book and oh you've no idea how funny you looked they both laughed and there was a silence do you know he said i can hardly believe that this is the first meal we've ever had alone together it seems as though it is funny she said smiling hurriedly at him he did not smile he said i want you to tell me why you were so angel good why did you let me stay why did you lay the pretty table for two because we've never been in the same mood at the same time she said desperately and somehow i thought we should be this evening what mood he asked inexorably why jolly cheerful she said with the slightest possible hesitation i see there was another silence then she said in a voice that fluttered a little my old governess miss pettingill you remember old pet well she's coming by the train that gets in at three i wired to her from town she ought to be here by now ought she he cried pushing back his chair and coming towards her ought she then by heaven before she comes i'm going to tell you something no don't she cried you'll spoil everything go and sit down again you shall i insist let me tell you i always swore i would some day why he said and sat down because i knew you'd never make up your mind to tell me to tell you what anything for fear you should have to say it in the same way someone else had said it before said what anything sit still now i'm going to tell you she came slowly round the table and knelt on one knee beside him her elbows on the arm of his chair you've never had the courage to make up your mind to anything she began is that what you were going to tell me he asked and looked in her eyes till she dropped their lids no yes no i haven't anything to tell you really good night aren't you going to tell me there isn't anything to tell she said then i'll tell you said he she started up and the little brass knocker's urgent summons resounded through the bungalow here she is she cried he also sprang to his feet and we haven't told each other anything he said haven't we ah no don't let me go there she's knocking again you must let me go he let her slip through his arms at the door she paused to flash a soft queer smile at him it was i who told you after all she said aren't you glad because that wasn't a bit literary no you didn't i told you he retorted not you she said scornfully that would have been too obvious end of chapter three the obvious recording by jean bascom potomac maryland